0: Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast from Netflix. I'm Vada and I'm hosting this week's episode. Every other week on You Can't Make This Up, we bring in a new interviewer to talk about a different Netflix series or film with their special guests. And all of the stories are surprisingly true. Fans have been anxiously awaiting the return of Making a Murderer since the first 10 episodes dropped in 2015. And in just 2 days, part 2 is finally launching on Netflix. In anticipation of its return, we sat down with Make Your Murderer creators and directors Laura Ricciardi and Moira Demos for an exclusive interview. As a reminder, part one left off with both Stephen Avery and his nephew Brendan Dassey being convicted of murdering Teresa Halbach in 2005. But that's not the end of their stories. Both Brendan and Stephen claimed they were wrongfully convicted, and with the series bringing national and international attention to their cases, Laura and Moira kept documenting. Part 2 revisits the Avery and Dassey families and Teresa Halbeck's friends. It also introduces Stephen Avery's new attorney, Kathleen Zellner. With 19 exonerations, Zellner holds the record for the most overturned wrongful convictions. Part 2 explores the muddled post-conviction process and the impact the series had on the town, and so much more. Here to discuss Parts 1 and 2 of Making a Murderer is Netflix's Jarrett Weisselman with directors Laura Ricciardi and Moira Demos.
1: Laura Moira, thank you so much for being here with us today. The new episodes are absolutely incredible. But before we sort of dig into those, I want to go back to the beginning a little bit. And just for for viewers and for people, you know, it's been a minute since the first batch of episodes. What was it about the Stephen Avery case that made you want to start documenting it?
2: Well, we first read about Stephen Avery. He appeared on the front page of the New York Times. This was back in late two thousand five, and What immediately caught our attention was the headline in the Times. It said, freed by DNA, now charged in new crime. And we were on the lookout for a story, and we'd never heard of a DNA exoneree who was later charged with a crime. And so we made some initial calls and found out that um, he was going to be having a court appearance and that it would be possible to film that court appearance. And so... We drove out to Wisconsin and started shooting.
1: Absolutely. You know, obviously the goal at the outset was to document this case and to really show what may or may not have been a miscarriage of justice. I mean, has that goal changed over the years for you, or is that still sort of the point of this exercise for you?
3: Well, you know, Laura mentioned we first learned about this when we saw the headline in The New York Times and read the article, and it was really Stephen's unique status as a DNA exoneree charged in a new crime. And the idea that following this one character, you could go really from one extreme of the criminal justice system through the belly of it to the other. And, you know, that really does continue in part two. Um, we're, We're still with that character and he is still in the system and we are learning about an entire new phase of it.
1: Had you ever truly stopped filming between parts one and two?
3: There was a bit
2: of a hiatus. We resumed filming six months after the first season launched. So, and in that period of time, we were, I think, along with everyone else, just experiencing the response to the series. There was definitely a public dialogue about it. Lots of things were playing out, you know, on social media. And we had several criteria for deciding whether or not to commit to a second season, because it is a tremendous commitment. And one of the major questions was, you know, is there an appetite for it? Would, would it find an audience? And I think there was a resounding yes. So um, in, in that way, it was it was easy to decide to do a second season.
1: What was it like to really reimmerse yourself in the town, a town that had watched the first batch of episodes and that had seen sort of, you know, Stephen's story play out? What kind of reactions did you get and did your crew get to that?
3: Well, I mean, there were so many, so many things about going back into production for part two were different than part one. Um, one of them was the fact that. You know, now going to Wisconsin to film, you know, we're filming such a high-profile case that everybody has an opinion on and, and that we are known. You know, when we first started, we were two female film students. People think, oh, you don't matter. Um, so, you know, you could use that. You could be more invisible. Um, that obviously is harder now. There are situations where we ourselves can't go, so we have to send crew it, it was a changed world because of the series. So that was not something we could ignore or pretend wasn't true. So, you know, that was another reason to open the first episode of part two with some documentation of exactly how that happened and, and how does that land you back in this story.
0: The Netflix documentary really
2: opened up everybody's eyes. could sleep, couldn't rest, I knew something had to be done. We all I don't believe in the corruption in Mantua County. I, I'm 100% behind the police officers. I think if they have nothing to hide, they
3: would give these two guys retrials. DNA evidence proved it, so he's guilty. Simple fact.
1: This could have happened to you, this could happen to any of your family members. They have to kill somebody first. The sheriff's
2: department, framed
0: these two Netflix tell you what the thing!
3: So, you know, certainly in filming part two, there there were moments where, you know, somebody would mention when I saw the series or somebody told me this after they saw the series. Many people's opinions had changed after seeing the series. So, you know, it was part of what we were capturing.
1: Logistically, I felt like when I was watching the new episodes, I kept noticing that the bigness of this was so different now compared to the first part. And, I mean, I think how many crews were actually covering things that you guys were probably the only ones covering the first time around. I mean, how did sort of the, the general news attention and the mass media sort of descending on all of these court moments change the way you would actually physically shoot the show?
3: Well, I think, I mean, when doing the part one, we were very interested in the difference between, you know, public and private What's happening at the courthouse, but what's happening as you prepare for that, what shows up in the news conference versus, you know, what actually happened in the interrogation room, always that conflict between public and private. So in a way, it's just another opportunity to explore some of those same themes.
1: Absolutely. One of the other big themes that has been throughout the entire series is sort of the criminal justice system and how it potentially needs to be reformed and how it doesn't always work for all citizens sometimes. And I'm curious how you feel that theme develops over the course of part two.
2: Well, one of the things we were examining in part one was how we as a society define justice. And, you know, this story happened to be playing out in the context of the American criminal justice system. But in many ways, we think the story transcends the criminal process and how we define justice transcends that as well. So it was, on the one hand, an exploration of how the how we treat the other. How do we treat people who are different than ourselves or we perceive to be different? And, you know, the Averys belong to an underclass, and there was this question of, you know, how will they be treated in the criminal justice system? And we, you know, we ultimately came away from part one understanding that, that justice is a process. And the question really is, you know, was the process fair?
3: I mean, I, I agree with Laura that, you know, when, when we were making part one and when we think back on what, what we believe part one offers, um, it, it does go way beyond this story, but it also goes way beyond the criminal justice system. It's very much a story about identity. And, you know, Stephen sets that up right at the beginning of episode one of part one. And he says, you know, I don't want to be a criminal. I want to be normal. And yet his entire life, people have been telling him who he is. And I think that's, you know, when it comes down to it, I think that's behind a lot of why this resonates for people. You know, this world is full of individuals who are having quite a struggle to, to have the space and the power to say who they are and there's a lot of forces from all different directions whether it be the criminal justice system or their families or their community that affect that so you know that's one of the most fundamental struggles that we have and i think it it's one of the reasons that i think people respond to his
1: story Absolutely. The post-conviction release concept, I think, exactly to your point, I had always assumed it was not easy to get out of prison once you were in prison. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, the lengths that Brendan's lawyers have to go to Mm -hmm. to invalidate so many steps that happened during Mm -hmm. this process and, by extension, through Stephen's process. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you have to sort of give yourselves a sort of legal 101 kind of tutorial before you can even enter into this to make it clear for the audience?
3: Well, I think it's, you know, for us, it's a process as well. Um, And certainly when we were making part one, we went on an incredible journey, but we've been on a journey these past three years as well. And, you know, that is what we try to offer to our viewers to recreate through the editing process what our journey was. So when you enter in the first episode of part 2 you're not going to know as much and you're going to have some assumptions and you're going to learn some things you're going to make discoveries and those are very akin to the same discoveries and education that we got
1: for sure and it was very interesting to me because obviously part 1 you had collected a lot of evidence you know you had to present the cases that were presented in court and the you know the confession tapes and all those pieces of evidence that were part of the trial but in part 2 You're actually on the evidence collection process with the lawyers in a much different way. What was interesting about that for you as filmmakers, as people who sort of were interested in the story, that, you know, being with Kathleen on the lot as they're looking for stuff, I mean, how did that change sort of maybe the way you wanted to tell that part of the story?
3: The way that we work, we always— we always go to people that are involved in the story. You know, we're not talking to outside experts that aren't involved. So our our subjects are people that are giving their firsthand experience, and we're following them on their journeys. Um, it so happened that part of part two was meeting Kathleen Zellner, and in following her, we ended up following a lot of evidence. But, you know, in part one, I mean, you mentioned, you know, we had—we'd gathered a lot of evidence, but in fact— we were not gathering any evidence. We were not asking questions about the facts of the case. We were documenting people's experiences. And I would say that it's consistent in part two. It's just there are some new characters who are much more hands-on and investigating. So we're taking that ju- that the viewers into that journey, into the investigation.
1: Absolutely. I would love to talk a little bit of Kathleen. I think she's someone audiences are going to have a really... Uh, strong reaction to in great ways. I think she's extremely confident and I Mm -hmm. like the way she tackles this case and sort of how she's very media savvy at the same time. She can Mm -hmm. sort of use that to her advantage. What were your first impressions of her?
3: We
2: were thrilled when Kathleen Zellner agreed to participate in the series. I mean, she had lots of offers before we even spoke with her and she declined those and chose to film with us and understood that in agreeing to film with us that we would need a certain level of access um, to make the, you know, the storytelling meaningful. And there are ways in which we rely upon her to narrate the process because part of our job in this season is to, try to inform the viewers or educate the viewers about a phase of the criminal process that most of us aren't that familiar with, the post-conviction phase. And she was incredibly gracious and really helped guide us through the process. Yeah, the prosecution presented testimony that when Stephen turned the ignition key, that the cut on the first joint of his middle finger had made the blood Pattern stain by the ignition, and that he'd done that just naturally as part of turning the key. Well, that's ludicrous because once you get in the car and you put the ignition uh, key in and you turn it, you're two inches from that stain. That is not how it happened. I don't care. You could get in that car and do that a thousand times with blood on your finger and you will never create that mark. So, what does that tell me? Once I uncover one lie like that, I know there's a whole bunch more lying going on. We were doing our own research and fact-checking and all of that, but just to get um, some foundation for what does it mean. And of course, she is the winningest post-conviction attorney in the country. She's had more exonerations than any other private attorney in the country. So we really felt like it was sort of a master class for us to learn about the post-conviction process from her. So... We were definitely excited when she agreed to participate and and to give us access. We had no idea what shape that would take. And really, as, you know, with Kathleen and and all of our subjects, it's, it's all about building trust. And we feel like our primary job is to earn the trust of our subjects. So, you know, it's, showing up when you say you'll be there and never sitting in judgment of your subject, just those sorts of things that you do when when you're working with people. And when the stakes are so incredibly high, I mean, she is representing somebody who is imprisoned for life without the possibility of parole. And she certainly feels like his life is in her hands. She also feels like the clock is ticking. You know, the, there's an element of of time here. She's trying to race against time, both because Stephen isn't necessarily in the best of health. I don't know who is in a in a prison, but also his family. His parents are aging and ailing, and Stephen's primary relationship is his relationship with his parents. So we were cognizant of all of that, and you know, always had that at the forefront of our minds, as well as, of course, you know, trying to give our viewers and experience and always thinking about the viewer as well.
1: Absolutely. I want to ask briefly about the family. Obviously, you spend a lot of time with the Averys both over part one and part two, and we see in part two, you know, Stephen's mother isn't in the best of health. But even beyond that, you know, the fight that Stephen has with his sister over the course of the season— I mean, the toll that this experience has taken on this family, I would imagine when you talk about potential, you know, miscarriages of justice happening in these cases, is one of the things you feel like people really relate to about the show is the toll that this actually does take on the family. Because I think that's something that, for me, I find very affecting. You know, if, in fact, Stephen has been framed and is not guilty, what his family has been through over the last 30 years as a result of that is horrifying,
3: Well, I think one of the things we were definitely interested in exploring and capturing in part two was, you know, the emotional toll that this part of the process in particular takes on really everyone involved, whether it be Stephen and Brendan or, you know, their families and the time that it's taking, the obstacles they are facing, but as well, you know, Teresa Halbach's family and all of the many people that care so deeply about her and the tragedy that happened there, to have things reopened, reopened by attorneys that are digging into things and trying to bring it back to court. And there's sort of no winners here. There's pain all around. But, you know, it's our job to be able to, you know, to try to represent that. And not shy away from that. You know, sometimes we don't we don't want to look at difficult things or we don't want to really unpack why is it that way? And we're sort of asking and encouraging viewers to spend some time there and understand it more.
1: I, I want to talk a little bit about sort of bringing things back to the surface because such a huge part of these episodes, is almost having to relitigate what Dean and Jerry did, looking back at the case mm-hmm. and mistakes they had made. And obviously, you know, they are characters, if you will, that the audience really responded to in part one. Did it surprise you that Kathleen found so many possible avenues of mistakes that had been made with that initial case in her investigation now?
2: I think a necessary part of the process for a post-conviction lawyer is a re-examination of what came before and that includes as Kathleen lays out you know it's it's looking for new evidence and um, on being on the lookout for possible constitutional violations and that could mean evidence that was withheld by the prosecution or looking once again at the performance of the defense attorneys who came before We certainly had no idea what Kathleen would find on her journey, and we were just there to, you know, to document it as
1: she found it. I wanna talk a little bit about what she sort of discovered, but before we do, I mean, how would you describe your reaction to really standing back and looking at just the sheer volume of things Kathleen discovered that actually could help Stephen? I mean, were you surprised that there was just so much for her to work with?
2: I wasn't surprised, frankly, because, you know, this was an incredibly complex case. I don't believe it was treated as such by the prosecution, by law enforcement. I think they thought very early on that they had all the answers. And I think it's much more fascinating to raise questions and utilize a process to try to answer those questions. Jerry Buting at one point in the story talks about, you know, how many documents there were alone— And he also talks about video materials and CDs and all of those things. And, you know, it was just a mountain of material for anyone involved to go through. And interestingly, you know, Kathleen pointed out to us early on that Teresa Hallbuck disappeared on October 31st of 2005 and was first reported missing on November 3rd later that week. And Stephen Avery was in custody by November 9th of 2005. So one of her arguments is that this was a rush to judgment. And she worked with a former FBI agent who is a profiler, actually, and he talked about you know, what proper protocol is for law enforcement and what following that protocol might look like. And... It's a much more scientific approach. It's evidence-based, not suspect-based. And so that's, you know, one of the things that we were trying to capture as well.
1: Kathleen says in the series that I'm in this for the long haul, basically. I'm committed to righting this wrong and to making sure Stephen gets what he deserves. And I'm curious, do you as filmmakers feel the same way? I mean, are you in this story for the long haul and in telling this story until it's inevitable conclusion, whatever that is?
3: I mean, it's hard to imagine what a true end to a story with so many um, threads and so many people who have gone through so much would look like. Um, We certainly have deep connections to many people in this story. And, you know, I I think for us, the question of, you know, continuing past this part two will be the same questions that were there for part one or for part two of... What, what is the story that's taking place at this point? Can we maintain or gain access to it? And does it offer something new? So we will be asking those questions and, you know, assessing.
1: What has it been like for you as people to live with this case for 13 years and to live with the ideas of potential injustice and everything that's covered in this series? I mean, how do you even verbalize something like that? Mm-hmm.
3: I think it is hard to verbalize. I mean, I think that's part of, you know, we put it into our work. It's it's much harder to talk about our work than to share our work. But um, many people often talk about creative work as, you know, it's your baby or it, it's like a child. And I think it's, there is something similar to that, you know, asking a parent about their 13-year-old child. Like, there isn't a way to think about those last 13 years without the child. It's just, it's part of your life. And it's part of what matters most to you. What about for you? I mean, we certainly immersed
2: ourselves in the work. And again, having no idea how long we would be working in it or on it. (laughs) So I think part of what helps us manage actually is believing that there's a value in telling this particular story and wanting to share that with people and then of course just the tremendous responsibility we feel to our subjects you know it's 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 a huge responsibility to ask someone to tell their story I like to think of it as a two-way street that we're giving them a voice but we're telling their story and part of what helps for sure is you know finding those lighter moments Finding humor in things, the little things, the simple things. I mean, there, we happen to be animal lovers, and there, you'll see lots of dogs in, in part two. Um, you know, our subjects just happen to have dogs and, <laughs> dogs and cats, actually. So, um, you know, just trying to take a moment when you're in the field or in the edit room and appreciate those funny moments or those little things.
1: What was the hardest thing for you about making part two?
3: Why are you looking at me?
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> the hardest thing was not Laura. <laughs> um, Just to be clear, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there were so many things that were different about making Part Two. Um, being in post-production at the same time as you're in production, so you've edited scenes. New new scenes are coming in. You know, they're changing where the story is going. You know, if you apply your skills as a storyteller. You're planting and paying off. You're threading things through. You know, you do need to know the arc of your story when you're laying the foundation. So that was certainly a challenge. The early episodes had many, many more versions than the later episodes. Part of that was schedule too. And the other thing that, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say this was a challenge. It was just different and an adjustment. The hard work of part one was, you know, there was the two of us with Laura's sister and brother-in-law at times and a few other people, but it was the struggle and the work to create and present our vision. And in this part, once again, as creators and directors, of course, we have a vision, but we have a much bigger team. And so you're communicating with collaborators to have them help you present your vision rather than you yourself are tasked with that. So it's a very different skill set as well.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, From the outside looking in, I can tell you, you really do an amazing job of setting up and paying off throughout the entire part two. But when someone finishes part two, what are the things you now want them to be saying or thinking about or, you know, wondering as they finish the second batch of episodes?
3: You know, well, when we finished part one and, and spoke to many viewers, you know, we would often get into conversations about how this wasn't just something that could or couldn't happen in Manitowoc County, Wisconsin, that something like this could happen anywhere. And I think what's something that's so special about part two is, you know, the story grows. Brendan is in the federal court system. His case is going to Chicago to the Seventh Circuit. They're trying to go to Washington, D.C. And I hope that it is clear to viewers that this isn't a unique story in that way. It's not something that is only involving Wisconsin or only involving Manitowoc. And these are issues and concepts and struggles that affect everyone. So I hope that's even clearer in this season and encourage viewers to understand that, w- that what you see these characters going through could affect you yourself and you may be involved in it in a way that you don't even understand yet.
2: One thing I would love people to recognize about part two is um, the caliber of the attorneys who we spent significant time with. You know, Steve Drizzen is an expert on police interrogation techniques, juvenile confessions. Laura Nyrider, she she talks in part two about how Brendan Dassey's case was the first case she got as a law student. And, you know, now she's the co-director of the clinic that, you know, the team of lawyers who are representing him. So that was really fascinating. And, of course, you know, Kathleen Zellner is just She's a force in her field. so, and part of what we love about that, too, is of those three lawyers, two of them are women. and they're incredibly confident. They're competent, they're gracious. You know, they're human. And it's it's it was just a privilege to be able to film with women like that. I mean, Steve included, but but just thinking about the women for a moment, because, you know, part of what really resonated for us, in part one was the strength and resolve of the women who were related to the people most significantly affected. With part two, we're also, you know, we had access again to Dolores Avery and to Barb Todek. So these are incredibly resilient, giving people. And they we will always be grateful to all of them because they let us in and um, trusted us and really allowed us to to turn a lens on what they were doing and sometimes when they were in their darkest moments and that's an incredible gift and it's it's really exciting for us to be able to share that with the world
1: well then with that i will say laura Moira, thank you so much for being here today and congratulations on part two Thank making a Murderer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that was Jarrett with Laura and Moira. And that's it for this week's episode. But we'll be back next Wednesday to keep talking about Making a Murderer. In the meantime, watch part two. Then you can head back to this feed for a roundtable discussion with some truly great people. Dan Taberski, host of Missing Richard Simmons, will be in conversation with the host of Criminal, Phoebe Judge, and attorney David Rudolph, who represented Michael Peterson and was featured in the Netflix original docu-series, The Staircase. So check back next week for that special discussion about making a murderer and true crime. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review this show. It helps other people find it and also brings me joy. Don't we all need a little joy right now? You Can't Make This Up is a production of Pineapple Street Media and Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue. I'm Ray Vada, and thank you so much for listening.